Hello and welcome to the Uninformed Handball Hour. It's part two of our World Championship preview. We went through the small teams in the first pod and now we're going for the big boys. And once again, Alex Kulesh is here. How are you, Chris? I'm pretty good. We're very close now to the World Championship. Not long to wait before we absolutely gorge ourselves on nonstop handball for 21 days. And yeah, a lot of interesting storylines developing throughout the championship. And I think already a lot of them uh, before this championship beginning starting to emerge with, as we spoke a little bit about in our first preview pod, uh, not all teams are being created equal thanks to COVID and injuries and withdrawals. And we're going to go through that with the big dogs now. I think we should start with Germany. What do you reckon, Alex? I think Germany is a, is a good place to start because they've probably lost the most stars. Mm. <laughs> yeah, if you, if you look at that German squad, a lot of them have actually decided to sit out because of... Um, covid reasons as opposed to actually contracting covid like some other countries we have hendrik perkeler and patrick Vincek, who you know as we said they're attached at the hip so if one doesn't go then the other one has to stay at home as well <laughs> plus their unexpected star defender on the right hand side of them who's stefan weinhold so a third great defender and uh, a right back keel player as well who decided not to go and another defender as well finn lemke the the giant uh from melsungen is out so they, they've lost they've completely lost their huge center block that uh, has been key for them in the european championships the good thing is they they do have a lot of good players to to fill in but I, I i just don't know how they will recover that defensive block really yeah i mean i saw like the only real glimpse of them i've seen so far is that uh first game against austria in the european championship qualifier during the week and you know they they won the game fairly comfortably uh maybe the score was a bit friendly to them in the end but it was a comfortable win and the defense looked pretty good but there, it, there was no real like standout there in, in terms of the middle block you've got someone like johannes gola in there who i think is going to be very important for them probably a line player who would have been in the squad alongside vincek and pekeler but now he's going to have to take on a lot of the uh responsibility himself and maybe even someone like Paul Drucks as well I hate to say it but I think he's going to have a big championship for Germany (laughs) (laughs) that's a lie I don't believe you Chris I I will never I'm a I'm a big fan of Fuchser Berlin and I Paul Drucks has let me down too many times (laughs) (laughs) if if Germany's hopes lie on Paul Drucks then I am riding them out of the competition right here right now but I I, I don't think their hopes lie solely on Paul Drucks where where do their hopes lie I I think there's a lot of opportunity for the younger players um Timo Kastening has shown himself as a top player in previous championships Guys like Johannes Gola and hopefully Yannick Kolbacher is back for a tournament. I think he's doubtful at the moment. 
and Yuri Knorr, who, who got the move to Minden from Barcelona B and has started to really shine in the Bundesliga for them this season. And I think he could um, potentially be a breakout player in this tournament because, again, the the loss of a lot of players means that he might be thrust into the spotlight a little bit earlier. And, you know, Germany have had issues with that centre-back position for a while. And I don't think... Um, our good friend Strobel is coming back <laughs> to take his place this year. So um, th- there is an opportunity for Yuri Knorr to shine. Yeah, I think Alfred Gislason is another added bonus for Germany, the fact that he's the coach now, which is uh, fantastic for them. I think he probably would have had it in mind that he was going to have to form a center player uh, from a young age and make them into something and throw them into the deep end pretty early. So Yuri Knorr could be that guy. And uh, it could be the solution long term for Germany, which is quite exciting. Uh, Fabian Vida, who is another player who's filled in that position. He's a left-hander, usually likes to play on the right-hand side, but had done well in the center. He's out with a shoulder injury as well. So, yeah, they're missing a lot of players, Germany. Andy Wolf in goal is a big uh, plus for them as well. I think he could have a, a big part to play. And you mentioned Timo Kastening on the wing. You've got Uwe Gensheimer as the, the captain of first choice left wing with Marcel Schiller behind him, who's also good. So, yeah, really, I guess the same formula as usual for Germany. Good defense if they can manage it with the goalkeepers and then uh, line players and wingers doing the business. That'll be the key for them. Yeah, I think, you know, Germany have actually reveled in an underdog uh, role for the last number of years and they're kind of thrust into that again with these players pulling out and maybe maybe that that's something that will drive them and you know there's a lot of appetite for these new players to to make an impact so it'll be interesting to see how they get on let's look at the reigning european champions or two-time european champions spain uh, unlike germany they're looking pretty good when it comes to their squad not too many players injured just uh Yul McGinnigalde and eduardo gurbindo who could have been contenders for the squad are out besides that looking pretty full you know they are the european champions after all they seem to do better in the european competitions compared to the world championships but seeing as they're building up to the olympics later this year it's going to be a last hurrah for a lot of players what do you make of their chances i think spain is is a weird one it's a weird one because i think there's it's going to be the same feeling as the last european championship where spain are quietly the best team in the competition and quietly walk to a title i can see that happening very easily in this competition because as you said the team is very strong the team is almost fully healthy they're experienced they have stars they have depth i always find it funny with spain they for some reason they have a b team as well as the main team and the b team goes out and plays against some of the top european and uh, world teams and they usually beat or draw with teams like argentina and russia and poland and that's that's their b team that's the 16 20 players that didn't make it into the first team so i think they'll just kind of stroll through this competition add an quite a leisurely pace and you know it will take one of the top teams being at their best to just to beat them it's like it's not that i don't know what to expect for spain it's actually the opposite i know exactly what i'm going to expect from spain and 
it's going to take something special to beat them. Yeah, and you just don't, don't really know how they keep doing it, but they <laughs> they keep doing it. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, <laughs> but yeah, they 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 have. You know, I remember mentioning during the Euro last year that like the left back seemed like a problem position to me, but then you've got someone like Johan Kaneas in there who's been in good form uh, this season and uh, despite his age of 34 still seems to be able to produce uh, Danny Dushabayev coming into the center back position probably going to have his first real taste of uh, of leading a team in the center back position alongside Entrerios and Sarmiento uh, and then you've got the likes of Danny uh, Alex Dushabayev uh, on the right wing Alex Gomez and Ferran Sole there uh, the goalkeeper uh, Gonzalo Perez de Vargas and Corrales in there it's just uh yeah, very solid squad throughout. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's a team that just doesn't have to change anything. And that might, might be their downfall in this competition. Because, But they have so much experience. They don't really have to change anything. They have to do what they do. And that's play lightning fast handball, attack through the wings, and hope that uh, Alex Dushabayev saves them in the last seconds, as he usually does. <laughs> so... <laughs> Well, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, well, he, he saved them in the final seconds uh, against Croatia in the final but last January at the European Championship. Croatia themselves have a few players doubtful, in particular Igor Karacic, who is doubtful with the, the same injury or the same issue uh, that he's had for a while in the pubis area. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what, what is it? What is the pubis, right? How do you get an injury to the pubis? Is Isn't <laughs> Did he have like a really good night on the town? <laughs> <laughs> Whatever it is, his, Sorry, pu- his pubic bone. I'm leaving that in the podcast. His pubic bone <laughs> seems to be giving him issues. And Lucas Stepanchich is definitely out with an ankle injury. Are we going to see Croatia break through at last? Do they still have enough in that squad? We have to see if Karacic does come back because. Without him, they, they do lack a bit of firepower. And as well as Stepan, Stepancic, uh, who is expected to be out of the competition, they, they lose their quite thin backcourt. Who they do have is Martinovic, who missed the last European Championship mm. with an injury. But he's been an exciting star who has really blossomed in the Bundesliga and has done really well for Hanover Bergdorf. Sindrich is still there. Duvniak is still there their defense is what got them to where they were uh, in the european championships we've seen what duvniak can do in that um number one position both in the last ehf final four where that made a huge impact and in the last european championship so i think they will approach it in the same way my question is whether teams have kind of know what's coming from them. Mm. Um, and I mean, the top teams that will come in the quarterfinal, semifinal stage will just know that if we can solve their 5-1 defense, we should be able to beat them. And can teams solve that? If they can't, then Croatia have a, <laughs> have a, good, chance. Have a good run on them. Yeah. It could be a good opportunity for for some young players to to make the breakthrough, like uh, you mentioned there, even Martinovic at right back, and uh, a guy you like as well, Halil Yaganyac, uh, the left back from Nexa Nashitsa. Uh, he's an exciting young player. So to see them, the two of them playing left and right back with the 
the old wise heads of either Karacic or Sindric or Dovniak in the center working with them could be an interesting combination and bulks up that backcourt, which, as you said, uh, over the years always feels a little bit thin. How about Sweden? I think Sweden... <laughs> well, the, the, the corpse of Sweden. The uh, lifeless corpse of Sweden. With how many, how many missing players? It's insane. I think they have 10 players out at the moment. <laughs> 10 very important players out of the squad. Um, Nicholas Ekberg, Jesper Nielsen, Andreas Nielsen, Lucas Nielsen, Simon Jepsen, Mikkel Appelgren, Linus Arneson, Anton Linskog, and Albin Lagergren. That's most of their best players. Yeah. I, I don't even know who's left. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the saddest thing is that half of those players uh, just decided they weren't going to go for one reason or another. Uh, for COVID reasons or just uh, not wanting to be a part of this championship. Uh, we'll see who makes it into the final squad at last. But yeah, hard to say anything. Uh, hard to say too much about the team based on that. New coach Glenn Solberg comes in. Uh, difficult job for him based on how many players are out. You know, there's one thing about Sweden is that it is a country chock full of good players like they have more players playing in the Bundesliga they have more players playing in Denmark and in Sweden they'll put together a team and maybe they can I think they kind of like to be in that role we were talking about Germany before a bit of an underdog role where nobody expects them to do anything and uh, while looking at their group which is the one with Egypt, Czech Republic, and Chile. Maybe Egypt are going to be the favorites in that group now, but there's still a very good chance that Sweden are, are going through in second place uh, behind them. Uh, and then, as you mentioned, it's probably the weakest quarter of the draw. Uh, and so they might still have some kind of chance, but uh, yeah, overall, not a pretty picture for Sweden at the moment. Their neighbors, though, Denmark... Looking uh, pretty good on their attempts to defend their title, uh, which they won at home in 2019. It seems like there's only one major player missing from the squad, and that's Rasmus Lauga. Yeah, I think Rasmus Lauga is a huge miss for them because it was really that duo of Mikkel Hansen and Lauga that uh, propelled them to the gold medal in 2019. But I think there's a lot of young talent that is budding for an opportunity to become a star in this competition for Denmark. And not even young talent that is completely new. I'm talking about Lars Andersen and Jakob Holm, who have really, they've stood out in the Bundesliga this season for a fixed brilliant team that is led by those two players and has been driven to quite a good position in uh, third place, I, th I think, at the moment in the Bundesliga. They're two players that can, you know, that they're so dynamic, they're so powerful, and they can ignite this team. And I don't think they will miss Lauga as much. They they might miss him on the defensive end. And on the f defensive end, they've also lost Henrik Toft Hansen, you know, the, uh, their top um, defensive specialist. So again, they're not as unscathed as, let's say, Spain. But again, their depth is crazy. And, you know, they have their constant gap at right back, which was filled, uh, which was filled by, um, Martin Olsen in 2019. He has been injured for most of the season. So I don't know how much he's in the squad. Um, I don't know how much he will contribute. Otherwise, they're left with Nikolai Uris there. 
again, not fully inspiring. And Matthias Gitzel. And Matthias Gitzel is exciting, but he he actually plays a lot at centre back. So he's a a left handed centre back in uh, in your style, Chris. <laughs> but <laughs> never mind the six uh, but, French players that can play in that way. You mentioned me. <laughs> so yeah, there's some question marks. I think there's a question mark about Mikkel Hansen if his heart is in it. To the same extent that we saw in 2019. Do you think, like, do you think he can replicate what he did in 2019? Yeah, 2019, I think, was a once in a career championship. You know, playing at home, having never won the world championship, and literally like lifting them with some phenomenal performances. I don't think he, I don't think he could be arsed to do it again. But, they do have the squad where players can come in and, and allow him to do it for some of the time, which he's very, I'm pretty sure he's happy to do. He is 33 now as well, Mikkel Hansen. You know, he's no spring chicken. Uh, maybe needs to start to be protected a little bit. They've got some really interesting players in there. I really like Jakob Holm as well. He did very well in the first test match against Norway. And even Bent Nugard, the TV2 journalist and commentator gave him the player of the match for that so he's a a good player who as you said is in that bracket of players who's been waiting to to break their way into the squad just shows how well established and how well functioning this squad is and i think adding a bit of youth in there uh, is not a bad thing at all and i think the team that they played uh, just a couple of days ago is probably the other big favorite in this competition Mm. and that is norway we've seen norway be right at the precipice of glory for 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 a few championships now they're really they're almost there can they do it this time will they do it this time sandra sagerson has tasted the sweet sweet elixir of glory by winning the champions league with keel that could be the thing that pushes him over the line now he's ready to go He's done something that Mikkel Hansen hasn't done, win the Champions League. (laughs) And now he's ready to beat him with Norway. They're missing Magnus Rød, right? That's the the one big loss for them. Yeah, and and I said in in the European Championship that if Magnus Rød was there, they would have won. Uh, I'm I'm very confident that they would have won the last European Championship if Magnus Rød was there. So they don't have him again and they don't you know they don't really have okay on that right side they do have some strength (laughs) (laughs) careful Kent Robin Tunnison (laughs) Kent Robin Tunnison Tunnison's back yeah Kent Robin Tunnison is there they've got Harold Reinkind and don't forget Ivan the time tangent time (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> if they are left to rely on Ivan Tangen again, I I don't know if the, I don't know how much Sagason can do to get them over the line. He he he's a solid player, but in, in a final situation, I think they're really left with Rankind. Can um Ken Antonison hasn't really played this year. He's mm. he came back from that injury, but he really hasn't had any playing time in Veshbrem. And Reinkind can be very inconsistent. They look great, though. Yeah. Um, and Sagason, although he's struggled a tiny bit this year, he still, you can see flashes of that brilliance and he always brings it to another level with Norway. And I think that's, that's it transmitted to a lot of the Norwegian players that they really, 
bring it to another level when they put on the national team jersey. You're, you know, Joran Sugard is in there as well. He's had a very good season with Flensburg. It looks like he's stepped up a level there. Christian O'Sullivan in there. It's the last hurrah for Magnus Jondal. He's going to retire at the end of the season. Also, Alexander Blontz, a very exciting left winger in there. Goalkeeper is the question mark, I think, if Torbjörn Bergerud can have a full tournament of performances that we know he's capable of. I mean, we talked a lot about this last year at the European Championship. They have all the pieces to win the championship. They have the, the formula is there, just needs somebody or some combination of them to make it all click. Yeah, and I, I think the experience that they've built has to come through at some stage. They've lost so many heartbreaking games. And if they're a quality team, which I, you know, everyone knows that they are, and the players are such high-level players, they should learn from all these experiences, like the European Championship where, what was it, in, in extra time, uh, Sagasen didn't get a touch of the ball because Ryan Kind didn't have any oxygen in his head and was breaking through and giving away attacking fouls with two minutes left while Sagasen didn't even get on the court. The, these That experience at a crucial, crucial time that they've gone through and the heartbreak that they've had, that I think they have to learn from it and... Just win. Finally win. <laughs> I want them to win. I want them to win. <laughs> there you go. Uh, lots of other teams in this championship, but I don't think we can go through all of them. We're like Portugal's in there, Slovenia's in there uh, as well. But uh, I think there's one big team left to talk about in this podcast, and that is France. And I think to do that, we have to bring in someone who is feeling the pain that the French handball team is putting into the hearts of many French supporters. So we're bringing in Kevin Doma, our good friend, to talk about what the hell is happening in French handball at the moment. Kevin Doma, our friend of the podcast, French correspondent and journalist for the HF and Han News, among many others. Kevin, how are you doing? Hi, guys. Uh, I'm very good. Thanks very much. Very nice to be back. We're just a few days away from the World Championship beginning, and we're not gonna, you know, we're not gonna beat around the bush here. Let's just go straight into it. What the hell is wrong with France? Well, if I knew, uh, I'd be very happy to tell you. But uh, there are so many things wrong at the moment um, that I actually don't know where to start. So, so maybe what about the the squad selection? That's that's probably a good place to start because. From my perspective, I looked at the squad and I was like, this is a strong team. Um, this looks like a team that could do some damage, but uh, obviously it wasn't perfect either. Alex, do you allow me to disagree with you? Absolutely. <laughs> that is not a strong team. Those are very strong players, but they're not a team. And that's perhaps the biggest problem that friends have since uh, I'd say 2019, that they have very strong individuals. Uh, all of them, or most of them, are among the best players in the world on their respective positions, but uh, they don't form a team. Uh, they're not happy to play with each other. They're not you know, just happy to be there. And the federation decided to sack the coach one year ago. And I don't know if you guys look to the, the game against Serbia on Tuesday, but basically there were no changes from the Euro uh, back one year ago. It's just like nothing's changed, the players are the same, and they're still not happy to play with each other. So that's 
quite a big problem, I think. Before we go into the game against Serbia, uh, which I was watching, by the way, and uh, very happy to see former coach of Alex and I, Tony Girona, pick up a nice victory for in his first game for Serbia. But as Alex said, on paper, it looks like a great squad. And it was even something that crossed my mind during the EHF Final Four as well. When there were so many French players on display and you're like, oh man, these guys are going to have a great championship next month. If the problem is uh, a lack of ability to bond or not will- willing to play with each other or just not fitting together, which is understandable. Why change the coach then unless they had explicit plans for him to change how this team was going to be? Or did the Federation look at the, the problems that were happening and say, okay, there's only one person who can go there. The players are not going to be changed. It's going to be the coach. I think it's a mix of everything. Basically, always easier and it always has been easier to sack one coach instead of 15 players so that's the first uh, the first thing but the players were really offensive towards Didi Dina when he when he was sacked basically they charged him with a lot of things uh, such as selecting players that were not meant to be there because they didn't have the level anymore such as um, you know not being clear enough about what he wanted to players to do on the court um, and basically for them the, the, for the players they went to the federation and said we don't want him anymore and that was the easy way out I mean the federation listened and then decided that Didier was not was not you know able to, to drive the, the, the truck uh, so to speak anymore so basically that was the easiest but I don't think the players looked at each other and told themselves or told each other that you know, things had to change, basically. They just pointed the finger at the coach, which was easy and which was the quickest thing to do. But there was no introspection. There was no reflection. There was no self-criticism uh, from any of the players. And so basically, we're just in the same situation. Remember that Guillaume Gilles was Didier Dinal's assistant. So he was, I think, and that's my own opinion, he was part of the problem as well. I mean, if Didier Dinal was one part of the problem, then Guillaume was probably the other part. And the Federation, you know, it's a it's a very, very, like, unique situation for France. That's the first time ever in the men uh, national team that a coach has been sacked. That's ha- that has never happened before. So basically, the Federation didn't know back in January 2020 how to deal with the problem. So they <laughs> dealt with it as they think they should. But basically, the, I don't think the solution was good. Yeah, it, it seems to me that by just going with Guillaume Gilles, you're picking a, a coach from the same skin as Didier Denard, the same background, the you know, and even part of the squad. So if it was big changes that anyone wanted, that wasn't going to bring those big changes. Have you seen anything different with Guillaume Gilles? in place is, is has anything changed you know we we are not able anymore just to, to go to the training sessions because of the of the pandemic and uh because basically the staff doesn't want it anymore whereas we were allowed to go to training sessions when did you know was in place so i didn't i wasn't able to notice anything different but uh one thing is for sure what we saw on the court on tuesday there was no change at all basically there was no change at all uh, i was I think I tweeted that and everybody thought it was a joke, but it wasn't. If this game had taken place in January 2020 during the Euro, you know, it would have fitted right in. I mean, there was no difference. And in the communication and the way Guillaume talks 
to the public, to the media, there's absolutely no difference either. In the players he chooses to, to join France, there, there are actually no difference. The best example for that is when he selected like 21 or 22 players in November for the first, uh, the first EHF Euro qualifiers. He actually picked the exact same players that played in the Euro, which was like, you're not picking the best players on their respective positions at the moment, which I think to me and to a lot of experts, are, that's the definition of a national team. You know, but it was actually picking players that had played the Euro that were, I do think, not good enough, at least some of them, and dragging them again uh, to the national team. Uh, there are a lot of things that actually don't make sense in, uh, in his choices, and I guess I'm not going to teach you guys how good players like Emrik Min or Hugo Deska are at the moment. But basically, he overlooks them. And it's just, I think we, I could go on forever. And I don't know if you want me to go on forever <laughs> about the problems of having Gilgin as a national team a coach. But uh, to me, the core of the problem is that this guy, no matter how good he is, has absolutely no experience as a club coach. He never coached any like youth national team. He never coached any club. So he has no experience. So that's the first problem. I mean, when things go wrong, how do you react? I mean, Tony Gerona, and I'll, I'll just, you know, take the same example as you, as you did. Tony Gerona has coached for many clubs and many national teams. So he knows how to handle things, you know? And Alfred Gestassen is, a, is the same and Jordi Ribera with uh, Spain is the same as well. They all got like experience and how to deal with bad moments and how to deal with good moments and neither Guillaume Gilles or Didina have this kind of experience so that's the first problem second problem in my opinion is that Guillaume Gilles has been playing with some of the oldest players in this team like Luc Abalo and Mika Gigou uh, where his former teammates are still his friends and it's actually hard to say to your friends or to your former teammates that, well, you're not relevant anymore. And I think everybody expected Guillaume Gilles to come, to arrive, and basically to get rid of the past and to start from a, from a, you know, a fresh page. And that's not what happened. It just took on from where Didier Delors left and carried on. And, uh, and yeah, that's one part of the problem as well, I think. Does that surprise you at all? Because it doesn't surprise me that Guillaume Gilles takes over the job and doesn't change the, the squad that much. It's not surprising, but it's disappointing. I think everybody was waiting for something new, for something surprising, different choices maybe, and that didn't happen. I mean, that was just like, basically he's saying, if you read you know, between the lines, that only Dina was the problem and not the players. You know, I mean, pick the same players, change the coach and everything's going to be okay. So basically that means that the coach was the problem, which I don't think... I don't think Didina was 100% part of the problem anyway. Well, he had a bit of success at the beginning. So, I mean, that's, uh, you know, that's, it's difficult to, uh, it's difficult to blame it all on him. You know, this it seems like in a weird way, a very French issue to have. I mean, we've seen it in football where the, and we're talking more about like the relationship with the coach and in particular Didier Dinar here. We've seen the similar case in football where there was a bit of a revolution and the players stuck over. We've seen it in rugby where the French national team players basically disregarded the coach and took over themselves. Is it a French problem? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't know if it's a French problem, but the thing is, we are, uh, as you know, as people, you know, French people, not only in Amble, 
very good at uh, pointing problems, saying that's a problem, and not being able to come up with a solution. Everybody said, oh, there is a problem with GDDR, there is a problem with the whole team, you know, staff and players. And nobody was able to come up and say, well, that's what we should do. At some point, and the Federation will probably, and that might happen after the Olympics, like get 10 or 15 new players and start anew, you know, start afresh. But we, as as you know, as as a people, as as French people, we, we don't know how to have, how to give solutions to problems, how to have solutions. Let's take the team that was selected. And is there anything that can change with the players that have been selected that can bring a different result for France? What do you think? Um, <laughs> that's why I'm asking you. <laughs> On paper, surely. I mean, look at the squad they have. You know, you've got incredible line players there and you've got enough left-handers to play in the whole court i mean let's just put nedim remily at left back and we're sorted <laughs> <laughs> i mean even even when you look at how the team is built i mean we have got like six six backcourt players which uh who are left-handers i mean that doesn't make sense at all i mean okay we've got some crazy players like dick mm like Melvin Richardson, they're probably like top five on their positions in the world. But at the end of the day, being a coach means, you know, actually picking players. And Guillaume Gilles doesn't want to do it. And I don't think that the way the team is built at the moment, I, I don't think anything can change. I mean, we, we lack a real good uh, left back. We don't have any. And we lack uh, a proper centre back as well. I don't think that's... Contama is up to the international level, and I don't think Nicolas Claire is, uh, you know, he's. I don't think he's international level as well. So basically, we've got tons of left-handers which are really good. We have basically no right-handers, you know, that are any international level. So basically, this team is really weirdly done, you know, and and it's kind of funny because back in ten ten years ago, maybe, uh, like in 2012, we had all these amazing right-handers like Daniel Narcisse and Nicolas Karabatic and uh, Jérôme Fernandez. And basically, on, we had uh, a left-hander playing on the right-back position. Whereas now, we could actually play, just as you said, three left-handers on the backcourt position, and that would be actually, you know, that might not be that that bad. <laughs> it does seem weird. And especially, the yeah, I think the centre-back was position was a problem in in the European Championship but we've actually seen Remy Lee play quite a lot of centre-back uh, this season and um, Melvin Richardson has continued to play centre-back uh, a good bit so potentially there could be a bit of progress there um, and it could click. Is, is that possible? I mean everything is possible just when you look at the names and you look at the 15 names all playing the Champions League half of them were in Cologne two, two weeks ago so basically we could be world champion and Olympic champions in three and six weeks in six months sorry but I mean I I, I don't know and I, I want to have your opinion as well because I watched the game with my own thoughts and I really f- thought that these guys were not happy to play with each other I mean, half of them were actually moaning or not talking to the teammate next to them. And I I actually thought that was a terrible image to, you know, to show to the world and to hand to the handball world. I mean, I could tell that some of them didn't want to play in Belgrade uh, on Tuesday, but I want to have your opinion as well. I was looking at this game, even though it was a European Championship qualifier, more as the first 
warm-up game for the championship uh, because in reality for France, that's what it was. And I am always hesitant to look too much into it, particularly when it comes to the performance on the court. It's difficult to look beyond the body language, like you said, when it is so poor. But in another stereotypical French way, they could be acting like that one day and then go and win the world championship in the next uh, three and a half weeks. And, you know, on paper, they do have the quality there. And I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't get too bogged down by the performance against Serbia that day, but I'm not resting any hopes on it. So uh, maybe my my opinion is less personal. Even, even the way they played. I mean, we, as, as you said, we have three of the best line players on the planet. I mean, Luka Karbatic and Fabregas and even Nikola Tona is, is in having a mm-hmm. hell of a season with Kielsa. And they shot uh, an overall six, well, I think it was like five shoots in 60 minutes. Well, that's because there's no one to pass it to them. Because you just have a lot of big guys that want to shoot. <laughs> that's it. I mean, you know, it's everybody's playing for... for Every player is playing for, for himself, and it's just like it's. They seem reluctant to pass the ball to their to the, the guy next to them. And you know, and, and I'll tell you something. And I don't know if you want to include it in the podcast or not. But at halftime, my mom sent me a text message, and my mom knows fuck all about handball. You know, she she only watches France. And that's it. And you know, Paris because Nicolas Carvajal was playing, so she's a big fan. Anyway, she sent me a text, and she was like. Are they only happy to play with each other for a start? And even like the random person who watches five games in a year is able to tell that, at least from their body language, they don't seem happy to be there. You know, and that's the role of a coach to actually make, you know, make things click and make, make you know, players be happy and have a, a good mood and have, you know, good atmosphere. It all starts from here. I can't barely recall any team which played in the the last, you know, international finals uh, in the the last years. All these guys were happy to play with each other. You know, I mean, I remember Denmark in 2019. I mean, there was a good atmosphere. And I remember uh, Croatia and I remember Spain and all these guys were really happy to go with the national team. Whereas now, in France, I don't see that. You know, I compare France... 2021 and 2020 to Spain at the last Euro. I mean, it's night and day. I've always loved the way France play because this, let's say, golden generation beforehand had a kind of unwritten connection. You know, they didn't have to try to play because they they had done it for such a long time. And I always I always look at France playing, and they do they have their own kind of unique style where they always a player would attack, jump. And then make a decision in the air and move it on. And it's something that France have just done forever because they've had these amazing players who can make those split second decisions and have the athleticism to hold in the air. And But the thing about it is that they always had someone to receive that pass at the right place and they knew each other. What it seems now is that this kind of next generation, which has slowly integrated with the old generation... And they could just kind of fall in place. But now that they have to own it, they're, they're doing the same thing. But for some reason, the player isn't where they should be. And, they, and that's why it ends up being very Where's Nikola Karabatic? <laughs> exactly. It's like you jump in the air. And it's the first thing you learn in handball. That, that's the wonderful thing about it. The first thing you learn in youth handball is 
make your decision before you jump. Don't uh, jump in the air and look for something because it will be a turnover. But it seems like they, they got used to that being so easy. And now that it's not easy, it's, there's just panic. They don't know how to deal with the, with the fact that it's not easy. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, and that's basically the, 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 it goes with, the, with what I told you earlier, is that the Federation doesn't know how to handle a bad situation. And the coach doesn't know how to handle a bad situation. And those players, well, they're left alone on the courts. I mean, Guillaume Gilles is not talking them through the bad times. You know, I, I mean, all he said after the game uh, on Tuesday was like, oh, I'm really, I'm really angry because the players did everything wrong. And I was like, okay, but some of these players are really young. I mean, we, we have to remember that DKM is only 22 and that Fabregas is only 23. And that, yeah, you know, that's the process of learning when you're a young player, when you're a long, young player. And back in the day, back in the, the era that you were talking about, you always had Nikola Karabatic or Daniel Narcisse or Cedric Sorando to, to fall upon, you know? I mean, this guy would actually help the team go in the right way, even bad bad situations. Whereas now, I mean, we only have two old players and they are wingers. And they are not out, that outspoken anyway. So, I mean, the young players are quite, you know, left alone in the, in the dark, if I, if, I, if I could say anything like this. I, I know that you're going to ask me at some point if the absence of Nikola Karabatic actually makes things worse. Well, I don't think so. I do not think so. I mean, that was exactly the same thing um, in, uh, in Norway last year. Nikola Karabatic is very good uh, playing leader, but he's not a vocal leader. He doesn't talk that much. You know, he doesn't say anything. He's quite keeping himself to his own. Uh, I mean, I know I'm actually drawing a very bleak uh, picture at the moment, but I don't know if there's a way out right now for France. I mean, I'm really pessimistic about the forthcoming games. Yeah, maybe they just need a big showdown meeting in a hotel room like uh, Le Bargeau to uh, inspire this new generation. Yeah. <laughs> they need to shave their heads. <laughs> Regardless what happens, and in the, in the previous podcast, we had uh, Drew, Donnellan, and JD from the USA coming on. No matter what happens, they're going to go to the main round. They're going to beat the USA, all right? <laughs> I'm pretty sure, right? No disrespect to the USA. And of course, anything can happen. But they are going to the main round. You know, they're in a group with Norway and Austria. And in their main round group, they will probably or they will have Portugal and Iceland, right? As the as the the big dogs. Top two then go to the quarterfinals. We've heard the you know the potential to win the world championship is there based purely on the team, but also at the other end, you don't see a way out for them. How far do you think France will go at this championship? I don't see them uh, being part of the final weekends. Uh, I guess quarterfinals seems pretty realistic. Uh, as you said, apart from Norway and Portugal uh, across the, the first two rounds, all of their opponents, you know, they, they should beat them. We've learned uh, over the, the next 18 months that France can lose to anybody. But I don't see them losing to Austria and I don't see them losing to the, to the USA. But I, I think quarterfinals seems pretty realistic. Hey, big bad Portugal are in the way again. So, you know, yeah. it's it's that classic trio, Norway, Portugal, France, <laughs> yeah. battling it out again. <laughs> and, and Portugal know exactly which buttons to push uh, in order to beat us. Um, mm. I'm uh, quite worried. But uh, 
being eliminated in the main round would be a landslide. You know, we, we're so not used to uh, to losing and to being eliminated in mm. the competitions. Then two quick questions. If France are going to have a somehow mesmerizing, amazing tournament, who's going to be the player who fills that role you're talking about and drives the team to success? I think Nedim Remini. Who's going to win the world championship? I mean, Denmark. Denmark are going to keep the title. Good stuff. Uh, take care of yourself, Kevin. Thank you so much, mate. See you. All right. Au revoir. Thank you. So thank you to Kevin Demar. He reckons Denmark's going to win the championship. Who do you reckon is going to win, Alex? Norway. My heart says Norway. And I usually follow my heart. Um, and I'm it just, it's set up for them. It, it's Norway or Spain for me. Okay. Um, I think Spain will just casually stroll through this competition, as I said, until they come up. And, you know, it, it will come down to some big games at the end. And we'll have to see whether Spain can get out of second gear and just crush a team. And we'll have to see if Norway will just commit in crunch time. But I think Norway will do that. They will have Sagasin. And Sagasin is building himself for an incredible year. Could you imagine? Champions League winner, World Championship winner. Another Champions League winner. <laughs> the Olympics. <laughs> the Olympics. You know, I'd like to see that train going. Okay. Anyway, I, I do think this is Norway's time. Yeah, Norway-Denmark final. I reckon Norway are going to do it as well this time. Who's going to be the MVP? I, I think Sagasen is set up to do what he did again. But I actually think that uh, Sagasen, they will try to protect Sagasen as much as they can at the start of this competition. And they do have a very tough group and main round group with, um, you know, likes of Austria, France, Portugal, and Iceland in there. You know, you can't relax too much. Mm. But I think they will try to wrap Sagasen up a little bit during those rounds and try to unleash him in the, the final stages of, of the competition. But I still think he, he will be MVP. Or again, my other side, uh, Spain, would be uh, Alex Dushbaev. Okay. He's just a star. He's an absolute star. Yeah, I, I can't really disagree with you on those uh, those ends, uh, except to say Ivan Tangen will be the MVP if, uh, <laughs> if Sander is protected. No. Well, who knows? Maybe he'll be inspired by his wife, Stina Skogran's amazing performances at the Euro. Maybe she'll teach him a thing or two. Anyway, on that note, <laughs> anything else you want to talk about? I just want to give a shout out to Belarus, who are going to make some waves in this competition. But I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about that uh, at a later stage, as well as the other teams we didn't mention. It's going to be a lot of it is sure is okay then from alex and myself it's goodbye enjoy the start of the world championship and we'll talk to you again very soon